I was blessed with the songs. What a mighty God we serve. I wonder, can we just stand in reverence and sing that song? We praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love. Someone lead, please. My Jesus, I
I will love. In mansions of glory Jehovah. 
King of creation and King of my life. sometimes we don't worship God as we should worship him. Jesus told the woman at the well, the Father is seeking those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. If you will, turn again to the book of Ruth. I would like to Read the last several verses of chapter 1. Beginning in verse 19. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them and they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi? 
seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. That's as far as I'd like to read right now. I'd just like to try to paint this picture in your minds. How would you have felt had you been Naomi coming back from the far country and you've been gone for 10 years? 10 years is a long time not to live in a house, not to live on a farm, and not to tend to a farm. I can't help but imagine as Naomi came over top of a little hill maybe and looked down into the fertile valley of Bethlehem and she saw again the golden sheaves of grain blowing, moving in the wind with the breezes. And she observed that little town of Bethlehem, the house of bread from which she had left 10 years earlier. And she comes there and she stands and she looks down into that village. And here she hears the children playing. Maybe some when she left, that were, some that when she left were not there. But she comes back and she has no children and she has no grandchildren. And she walks on down into the village and she sees and hears others with children and grandchildren. And can you picture as she continues walking with Ruth, who had never been there before and knew nothing about the Jews or their culture, you think of the emotions that these two women are experiencing. It's a whole host of emotions, I think. But here's Naomi coming back. And can you picture with me as she comes back and she makes a turn down the street to the old homestead. And as she comes to that homestead, I think tears are running down her cheeks. A place is overgrown. The flower beds that had been so beautiful, all overgrown, full of weeds. The yard hasn't been cut. And she looks through the weeds over towards the tree where the swing had been and where Malon and Kilion had played in the sandbox and barely can see the box anymore. And she looks over and says, I see the rope is busted. I see the chain is dangling on the swing. Ruth, that's where Malon and Killian used to swing. And over on the other side of the tree, there's a sandbox that they used to play in. And she keeps walking up towards the house. And can you picture with me a possibility of the screen door hanging by one hinge and it's not working properly? And they come up to the door, and the door starts squeaking, and they open the screen door, walk across the porch, and she opens the door into the house. Hasn't anybody lived there for 10 years? She opens the door, and can you picture a possibility? Sure enough. There runs a mouse. There goes a mouse. And she looks over, and the sofa, all dusty. And Elimelech's lazy boy, all dusty. And she says, here in this corner was my rocking chair, Ruth. Here's where I rocked Malin and Killian. 
and she sits in the rocker and Ruth settles in the lazy boy and suddenly Naomi says, oh, and there goes another mouse from out the lazy boy. And there they sit looking at each other. And Ruth again begins shedding tears. Why did I ever leave? It was so beautiful here, Ruth. This was a lovely place, a beautiful homestead. Look out this picture window. You see the barn out there. You can see the meadow from here. Little creek in the pasture there. That's where they used to ride the pony. Now it's only a memory. Naomi gets up out of the rocking chair and goes into the kitchen. Hmm. Opens the cupboard. There goes several roaches. You think there's roaches in the kitchen after 10 years? Opens up another door. And sure enough, there go the ants. Wow. Two widows in a rundown, dilapidated homestead. She goes on in. Here's a table where I used to fix the Kool-Aid for the boys when they were tired, coming in for snacks. Here's where Malon used to sit, and here's where Killian used to sit, and here's where I used to sit, and Limelech sat here. We had such good times here around this table. Now it's a memory. You think that's a possibility? Naomi says, Ruth, I blew it big time. Have you ever heard that expression? Have you ever made that expression? Recently I heard someone make that expression. And later my wife said, honey, I think maybe a better expression would have been, I sinned big time. Honey, you got a point. I sinned big time. They come there in the beginning of barley harvest. In the beginning of barley harvest. Here's two widows, one young and one aged. And the young one says, well, we're going to have to do something. We're in a bad situation. My mother-in-law is too old. So that puts a responsibility on me. And as they're coming through, they perhaps saw some of the reapers beginning to harvest some of the grain. And Ruth says, well, I saw lots of grain. I think maybe I'll see if I can find some and grind us some flour and make us some bread. I'm jumping ahead of the story. But that's where I would like to leave that scenario with you tonight. Lord willing, we want to pick up from there later as the Lord leads. To be honest with you, I sometimes really don't feel like I know how to do this, okay? But I ask God 
You put it together like you want it. And you direct it like you want it. So we're going to leave the two widows in that scenario, okay, for right now. Now I'd like to read chapter 2, verse 1. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. This is a tremendous verse, brother and sister. It is a marvelous verse. It is a glorious verse. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. I'd just like to insert at this point that the book of Ruth is based on two laws of Moses, taken from Leviticus chapter 25, Verses 23 to 25 and 47 through 49. And also Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. And these two laws are acted upon and played out in the book of Ruth. And one of the requirements, you're familiar with the year of Jubilee, when if there were any debtors who could not pay their debts and they were sold their possessions or their wives or their children, they were sold as slaves, in the year of Jubilee they were to be set free. But prior to the year of Jubilee, there is this grand and glorious provision that God gives and says, if you have a near kinsman and he is able to redeem them, he can do so prior to the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee may have been too long. And some of the slaves, those that were debtors, if they had such an individual, they could be freed and redeemed prior to the year of Jubilee. Isn't that gracious of God? Kind of God? Loving of God and merciful? But here it says this man's name was Boaz. I'd like to call attention again to the meaning of this name. I don't know if you remember or have read recently, but two of the pillars in Solomon's temple were named. One was named Jachin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. J-A-C-H-I-N. Jachin. And the other was Boaz. And those two pillars... The meaning of those names are significant. Boaz means in him is strength. In him is strength. The other one means he shall establish. I like that. Boaz, in him is strength. And I want to Briefly, this evening, at least from my perspective, talk about Boaz. I said the other evening, the king of Moab represents Satan and the citizens there, the world, and all that goes on in the world. Like 1 John 2.15 says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. And notice that word pride again. 
is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The king of Moab represents that. 1 John 5, long about verse 19 says, the whole world lieth in wickedness. You look that up in the original, it says, in the power of the wicked one. That is the world. Well, praise God. Boaz represents something quite different. In him is strength. In him is strength. Boaz. And for a beginning, I'd like to turn you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I'll begin reading in verse 6. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? The answer... All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The word of our God. Verse 9, O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. And that's what I would like to title the message tonight. Remember the other night? The sinner's God. Well, tonight we want to behold our God. The sinner's God. Boaz representative of God, of Christ. Behold your God. And what does it mean to behold something? How many of you have ever gotten a splinter in your finger? Okay. All right. Did you like it there? No. So what do you do? Maybe depending on your age, you run to mama or you run to daddy or you run for the tweezers or the pin. And what do you do when you see that splinter in there? Do you just say, is that the way you get a splinter out? You know, it's... It's in there deep. I don't think so. What do you do? Is there a difference? You see, the one way you're beholding, you're looking at it from various aspects, different perspectives. That is an impossibility to utter the majesty and the splendor and the glory of Jehovah. I've been blessed over and over with that song, The Days of Elijah. I'm not sure I've got the title right. But there comes a point in that song when a part of the chorus or all of the chorus kind of says in the background, there's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. You familiar with that song? That blesses me. There is no God. Like Jehovah. Behold your God. 
look what it says. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. In him is strength. How many of you have ever seen a young fellow pull his short sleeve back up and he pulls up his arm and he bulges this muscle? You like to see that? Feel it. Power. The arm of the Lord shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Now notice, that speaks of power. That speaks of omnipotence. Is anything too hard for God? And notice, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Care. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Tenderness, compassion, mercy, pity. I see these all in these verses. It's beautiful. Gentleness. And then notice the contrast. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Awesome. Back to the omnipotence. Measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. We live close to the ocean. Sometimes we go there. And sometimes we go there in the evening and we watch the moon come up over the water. And it's amazing. It's awesome. And you see the stars come out. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great You know what a span is? From the tip of your thumb to the tip of your little finger. Meet it out heaven with the span. Can we wrap our minds around that? That's beyond us, is it not? Praise God it is. And notice verse 13. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding. In other words, what university, what college did God attend to learn how to do what he did? And you look at all the creatures that God's created. Who told him how to do it? You look at our own body. The wisdom of God. Is any wonder Paul cries out in Romans 11, Oh, the depth, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The wisdom of God. Here it mentions these things. Paul writes about the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God's not foolish, but I think Paul is trying to convey something. Man at his best state is altogether vanity. And Paul goes on speaking about the wisdom of God in chapter 2. And he says, we speak wisdom among the wise. We speak wisdom, the wisdom of God, yet not the wisdom of this world. There's a difference. And then he explains some of that difference. He says, the wisdom of God outsmarted the ones who were responsible for the wisdom of this world. It says, because had the princes of this world known what God was about to do, 
they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But the wisdom of God. It's awesome. And the word of God. Amazing. Verse 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. He taketh up the owls as a very little thing. Seventeen all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. Verse 21, Have ye not known, have ye not heard, hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their hosts by number. He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might. In him is strength. For that he is strong in power. Not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, everlasting God, the Lord Jehovah, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. And I'd just like to quickly and briefly touch on some of the aspects of some of the attributes of God, the power of the word of God. It is amazing. It is awesome. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And verse 13 says, Neither is there anything that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are open and naked unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God's word is an awesome word. It is a powerful word. When God said in the beginning, we read in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was void and without form, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Void and without form, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And brother and sister, can you imagine when the voice of God spoke into that darkness, into that voidness, and said, let there be light. And there was light. And God divided the light from the darkness, the power of the word of God. It is an awesome word, an amazing word. And we read over and over in Genesis 1, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God saw that it was good. The power of the word of God. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. Power of the word of God. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. In him is strength. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Dividing the flames of fire where they had no hurt on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calve and discovereth the forest. 
And in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. The word of God. It's an awesome word. It's a powerful word. And as we look at the wisdom of God. And we look at the love of God. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. 1 John chapter 1 tells us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and he says, He is dwelling in the light whereunto no man can approach unto. John 1 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John, this is a condemnation that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Light. God is light. And the light shines in darkness. And what happens? The darkness comprehended it not. You turn a light on, you light a candle, and what happens to the dark? Shh. Works every time, every place, anytime, right? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The darkness comprehended it not. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 86. Verse 5, for thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. The goodness of God. And notice this phrase, ready to forgive. That is amazing and awesome and should humble us to our knees. And plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Verse 8, among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are thy works like are there any works like unto thy works. Verse 15, but thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Don't you want to know a God like that? Don't you want to have a God like that to be your God? Psalm 89, verse 6. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee. God is faithful. Paul writes in the New Testament time and again, God is faithful. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. If we deny him, he cannot deny himself. He is faithful, Paul writes to Timothy. He is faithful. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Wherewith he hath girded himself. Notice that. Strength. Psalm 97. The Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. 
There were lots of other scriptures I intended to look up or to turn to. But for time's sake, I'm going to eliminate some of them and just remind us the reality of the presence of God. There were individuals in history past that experienced the presence of God. Abraham being one of those. Joshua being one of those prior to the walls of Jericho tumbling down. The Lord appeared to him and said, take your shoes off your feet. The place you're standing is holy ground. Joshua had been standing that same spot prior. What made that holy ground? The presence of the Lord. The presence of God made it holy. Remember the burning bush when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and he said, take your shoes off. This is a holy place. God is a holy God. Isaiah in chapter 6 saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple in the year that King Uzziah died. He saw the holiness of God in connection with King Uzziah. You can read about King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles and what he did. He was a king, but he went in to offer incense where he was forbidden of God to go. The priest was to go there, not the king. And they told him, don't go there. And he went in anyways to burn incense, and he came out a leper, and he died a leper. And when he died a leper, Isaiah saw the holiness of God. And he realized God's not a God to be trifled with. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and the temple was filled with smoke. The glory of the Lord and the posts were moved. And he saw these seraphims, these angelic beings, covering their feet with their wings. With twain they covered their face, with twain they covered their feet, and with twain they did fly. And they cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And what did Isaiah say? Woe is me. And you read chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and you see Isaiah the fiery preacher saying, Woe unto them, woe unto them, woe unto them that put light for dark and, and put good for evil and evil for good. Woe unto them. But something happens, and now he is saying, Woe is me, for mine eyes have seen the king. And Isaiah, after that, as a result, says now in chapter 40, Behold your God. Behold your God. You see, he wants others to see what he saw so it will have the same effect on them that it had on him. You see, humility, brokenness, and repentance. Woe is me, for mine eyes have seen the king. Daniel saw the Lord. Ezekiel saw the Lord. And John, the revelator, saw the Lord on the Isle of Patmos. I love the way it says there, it reads, John banished on that Isle there to be put all by himself. But you know what? God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you all the way, even to the end of the world. And I didn't mention that part, but God's word is true. And when he says it, you can count on it. It is impossible for God to lie. He has never lied and he never will and he never can. Praise God. His word is true. And he said, I'll never leave you. And here's John on this aisle. All by himself? No. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me the voice as of a trumpet. He thought he was all alone, but he was in the spirit on Lord's Day. I love that. That is a place to be on Lord's Day, is it not? Worshiping in spirit and in truth, and John was faithful. He was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. Turn there, if you will, to Revelation chapter 1. That is so beautiful. And I'm at a failure to put into words. That's why I like to use the Bible. 
to try to describe what God tells us about himself. Notice what he says in verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet likened to fine brass as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as a sun shineth in his strength. Here's a description, brother and sister of the resurrected, glorified Christ, revealing himself and standing alongside of and with a lonely disciple. You can't run away from God. He knows where you are. Read Psalm 139. He saw you before you even knew you existed. Psalm 139 says, when I was in my mother's womb and my members were not created, you saw me. Before my members were even formed. What an amazing God. In him is strength. And he's faithful. And there John on the Isle of Patmos, when I saw him, I fell. I fell. Notice that. I fell at his feet as dead. Brother and sister, what a mighty God we serve. You remember the story of the Queen of Sheba when she heard the wisdom of Solomon and heard all the tales about Solomon? Haggai 2.8 says, God says, all the silver and all the gold is his. Belongs to him. He's a mighty man of wealth. Psalm 50 says, The cattle on a thousand hills are his. The fowls of the air are his. He owns it all. He is a mighty man of wealth. And a queen of Sheba, she heard about Solomon and his temple and and the whole nine yards. And she says, I don't believe it. No way could any man be that rich and that great and that powerful and that strong, that rich. You ain't going to make me believe that. And so she packed up her trunks, loaded them on her camels, and away she goes across the desert. I'm going to find out. And she comes over to Solomon. And sure enough, and I get this quote, if I remember it correctly, from reading it somewhere, I think in Elizabeth Elliot's book. I don't remember the title of the book, but it struck me as being rather, well, you fill in the blank. But she put it this way, Solomon had to be a great man because the queen of Sheba told him all her heart, and he listened. (laughs) And she came there to prove him with hard questions. It says she came there to prove him with hard questions and he was able to answer all her questions. He answered all her questions and Solomon, in a sense, is a type of Christ in his wisdom, in his glory, in his splendor, in his majesty, in that kingdom. And there was not a question that Jesus did not answer. The scribes and the Pharisees proved him with hard questions. Jesus had the wisdom. Colossians 2 tells us, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And the queen of Sheba, poor gal, it says, when she saw in reality everything that was happening, all the glistening of the silver and the gold and the the conduct of all of King Solomon's men, how they ascended up and how they descended. 
It says there was no more spirit in here. And how do you put that in modern terminology? I put it this way. It was a breathtaking experience. There was no more breath in her. And she says this. Wow. I didn't believe it until I came and saw it. And behold, the half was not told me. You remember that song? The half has never yet been told. I haven't even come close to the half tonight. But what an awesome God we, we have. A Boaz. In him is strength. In him is might. He has the riches. He has the power. And his will is a good will toward men. His will is a good will. I'm just going to have to stop, brothers and sisters. I'm getting kind of carried away in case you can't tell. But I guess I'm a little bit like Song of Solomon, and I'm going to close with this. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. There's given us this scenario. Song of Solomon, a beautiful analogy. The Lord Jesus Christ, remember? the rose of Sharon, and the lily of the valleys. That's Jesus. That's Boaz. A sweet-smelling smell. Sweet smell. Psalm 45 says, there's a sweet smell from the presence of Jesus. Oh, brother and sister, that has the most lovely smelling perfume. The presence of Jesus. Peaceful, joyful, the list could go on and on. It smells a lot better than alcohol and drugs and you name it, cigarette smoke. Jesus smells good, clean, refreshing. But the scenario is this. There's this girl who has girlfriends and as she's with her girlfriends, I'm just going to pull some names out of the air here, okay? I'm going to say Jimmy. I don't know are there any Jimmys here. And I'm going to say Susie. And Susie has five, six, seven friends. And everywhere Susie goes, she is saying, Oh, you ought to see Jimmy. Let me tell you about Jimmy. Everywhere they go, Jimmy this and Jimmy that and Jimmy this and Jimmy that. And finally, these five, six girls, they get kind of tired of them and say, come on now, Susie, what, what's, what's, so great about, what's so great about Jimmy? And this girl... What does she do? Start blushing. Oh. Uh. Hmm. No. She's not bewildered. She's not frustrated. She's not blushing. She's not ashamed. You know her response? I can just picture her breaking out in a big smile. Oh, Susie, I'm so glad you asked. You want to know what's so great about Jimmy? Hooey. Susie, you listen to this. Jimmy is white and Rudy, the chiefest among 10,000. His head is as a most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. 
His hands are his gold rings set with the burl. His belly is his bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are his pillars of marble. Can you hear anymore? Bear to hear anymore? And set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely, Susie. This is Jimmy. And this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, if you'd have been Mary or Grace or Georgiana, what would you have said to Susie? Really? And Susie, yeah, you better believe it. Really? And what do you think they would say? When are you going to introduce us to him? When are you going to introduce us to him? Brother and sister, I feel so inept and so inadequate and incapable of expressing adequately the glory and the splendor the lovely Lord Jesus. But I want to introduce him to you. He loves you. He cares about you. And he wants you to know him. He wants to know you. John 17 verse 3, Jesus says, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou have sent. You want to know him? He wants to know you. In him is strength. And she describes him, if you notice, from the tip of his head to the tip of his toe, and there's not one bad thing about him. Not one. Don't you want to know him? You want to know him? I think many of you do know him. Some of you may not know him. But I'm just, I'm not going to give a, a public invitation. But I'm going to invite you. Go home if you don't know him. You go home, you kneel down by your bed. And you say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I open my heart to you, Lord Jesus. You come in. I want to know you. And he will come in. And you will know him. And he will talk to you. And you can talk to him. What a mighty God we serve.